0: the creator of the acclaimed Celebrate Poe podcast comes an audio journey into the life and works of America's greatest poet, Walt Whitman. Discover Whitman's cosmic perspective and how he captured the spirit of democracy through his groundbreaking verse. Join me, George Bartley, as I explore Whitman's impact on our culture. Official premiere for Celebrate Whitman is July the 4th. 2024. Thank you.
1: No name in the poetical world is more firmly established than that of Fitz Green Halleck.
0: Edgar Allan Poe wrote those words for Graham's Magazine in 1843. This episode will take a look at Halleck as inspiration for some of America's first homoerotic works. Welcome to Celebrate Poe, every Monday night at 12 o'clock midnight. My name is George Bartley and this is episode 63, To Clasp Thy Hand in Mine. Before we go any further, I'd like to encourage you to write me at Celebrate Poe, that's all one word, CelebratePoe at gmail.com. Any comments, criticisms, and advice would be greatly appreciated and quite frankly keeps me going. These episodes take a long time to research, and I love every minute, but I want to deal with the subjects that you want to learn most about. This is the second in four episodes for Pride Month, episodes that deal with individuals in Poe's literary circle, and these are not your ordinary writers, but people who were responsible for some of the earliest homoerotic literature in the United States. Uh, If you've been listening to past episodes of Celebrate Poe, you probably know by now that I really like my memory aids, especially when introducing a new subject or individual. Probably the most important name to remember for this episode is Fitz slash Green Halleck. Or excuse me, that should be Fitz dash Green Halleck. At first, I wasn't sure if the name was Halleck or Hayek, but... Think of the computer Hal in 2001, a space odyssey. Now, Hal, who has the famous line, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. Think Hal for Halleck. And if I say Halleck instead of Halleck, which I probably will do, just chalk it up to me pronouncing the word wrong. It should be Halleck. Got that? Okay, Fitzgreen Halleck was born 1790, almost 20 years before Poe, uh, in uh, Guilford, Connecticut. Halleck and Guilford had an interesting relationship. It is said that the town never really fully accepted uh, Fitzgreen, and even though Halleck moved back to Guilford for the last two decades of his life, it appears that he never really felt at ease in the town. Now, when Fitzgreen was two years old, two drunken soldiers were passing by his father's front door. The soldiers thought it would be funny to discharge their rifles loaded with only powder right next to the side of the infant's head. They thought it would be funny to watch the infant scream at the noise. As a result, little Fitzgreen had severe hearing problems in his left ear for the rest of his life often appearing isolated in his relationships with other people simply because he just wasn't able to hear what they said. Now, uh, not surprisingly, uh, he tried all kinds of remedies, but none of them worked. Uh, The loud noise at such a close distance uh, had caused serious nerve damage. For example, during 1820, he went to a French physician, then in New York, for a special operation. And he was always trying this. In this particular operation, a burning cylinder of cotton saturated with oil was applied beneath the ear. Then the idea was to have the cylinder and the oil burn the ear until the patient could stand it no more. But when the oil was removed, Fitzgreen Halleck's hearing was not improved in the least. He was just in a lot more pain. I say this because in comparison to most writers, Poe spoke quite highly of Fitzgreen Halleck. And Poe was so routinely critical of other writers uh, that he was often referred to as the Tomahawk Man. Now, I've never seen this subject addressed before, but Poe did seem to have a unique empathy for the individual that today we might call the outsider. Later this podcast will take a thorough look at a fascinating lady by the name of Susan Archer Tally Weiss, who claimed to be one of Poe's closest friends, and I know that's a subject of real controversy among a lot of people. It's well documented that Susan Weiss lost her hearing in childhood as a result of an illness. Oh, I know in academic Poe circles, much of what she wrote about Poe is considered unreliable and sometimes just plain weird. And I'll look into all this later because Susan Talley Weiss is such an important source for what we know about Poe. The little bit that we do know. As someone who's done his share of interpreting for deaf people in college classes, I know that many college professors, especially in the past, felt extremely uncomfortable or feel extremely uncomfortable with hearing loss. Such professors often discount any communication from individuals who they consider as, quote, less than normal, unquote. Now, uh, I'm not saying that you find a great deal of this in current society, especially in comparison uh, to post-time, but during post-time, disabled people were all too frequently considered confused objects of pity, not as sources of reliable information. Or maybe I just want to give Susan Archer Weiss a chance, uh, because I've worked with deaf individuals most of my career, and I know that deaf individuals can often have extremely unique perspectives. Also, there are not that many biographies of Poe in autobook format. I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, Not many biographies. Stories and tales by Poe, yes, but not autobiographies. Or, excuse me, biographies. Uh, but for some reason, Susan Archer Weiss's classic, The Home Life of Poe, is easily obtainable. It's in the public domain. You can get it off a computer. It's free, and uh, I now have it on my iPhone, and I'm easy to, uh, uh, eager to uh, listen to it while I'm exercising. Anyway, uh, I want to wait until this podcast covers more of Poe's life before delving into Susan Archer Weiss in more detail. That subject will definitely be a two- or three-parter at the least. But I digress. Now, getting back to Fitzgreen, Fitzgreen Halig certainly received an excellent education in Guilford, Connecticut. His schoolmaster was Samuel Johnson, Jr., the compiler of A School Dictionary, the first dictionary compiled and published in the United States. Fitzgreen was extremely intelligent, and I'm sure that his schoolmaster passed on his passion for words to his student. At 15, Fitzgreen left school to work in his father's shop in Guilford, and this wasn't extremely unusual. Uh, Now, um, it was pretty obvious. It became pretty obvious uh, that uh, small-town life was holding of Fitzgreen Halleck back. When Halleck was 20, he set out for the big city, New York. If I could afford to pay the rights for the clip, it's up to you, New York, New York, from the movie New York, New York, I would insert it here. But anyway, it's just been written that um, Halleck discovered a life much to his liking in Manhattan, a place that, according to the book Homosexuality and the Fall of Fitzgreen Halleck, provided him with life's richest experiences and life's sweetest friends. But I really wouldn't say that was true at first, because originally when he went to New York, Fitzgreen Halleck looked in the city for a month for, occup- for an occupation, but uh, didn't really have any luck finding employment in the city. Well, he was very successful there later on. Uh, but when he first went to New York, he ended up making plans to move to Richmond, Virginia. But he was fortunately hired by a banker named Jacob Barker. Fitzgreen must have been happy because he worked for Jacob Barker for the next 20 years. Now, a little sidebar. You may remember episode 16, that's the episode about the War of 1812, where I mentioned that uh, Dolly Pardon, I mean Dolly Madison, uh, saw uh, that uh, the Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington uh, was saved during the first attack on Washington, D.C. So here you have this portrait of George Washington being saved. But the question is, nobody tells you what happened to the painting, well, during that time, Dolly Madison trusted Jacob Barker so much that she gave him the portrait of Washington Washington, for safekeeping until the War, war, war of 1812 was over. By the way, the episode about uh, war, the War of 1812 and Celebrate Poe and uh, the attack on the Capitol has had more than 170 downloads, far more than any other episode two sources that I'd uh, like to mention now before I forget them uh, include, first, The Life and Letters of Fitzgreen Halleck by James Grant Wilson and published in 1869. Obviously, it's in the public domain and it's free. The Life and Letters of Fitzgreen unknowingly emphasize what a big deal Fitzgreen was in literary circles of the time, that he was one of the biggies. The other source that I found extremely useful was The American Byron, Homosexuality and the Fall of Fitzgreen Halleck by John W. M. Halleck. By the way, the author is a distant relative of Fitzgreen Halleck, but the author's last name is Halleck, Halleck, not Halleck, 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 not Halleck. I'm emphasizing that lock instead of Halleck. And being published in the year 2000, over 170 years later, it can deal with aspects of Fitzgreen's life that earlier biographers would not dare state in print. Remember, this was back uh, when Fitzgreen and many of his friends engaged in a, quote, love that dare not speak its name. And that wasn't even mentioned in a book. But back to Fitzgreen... Like many a youth who was confused about his potential relations with others, uh, Halleck knew that he was lonely, but he hadn't met anyone who he really felt close to. Then he started writing professionally with his friend Joseph Rodman Drake. Now let's stop here and get these names down. For Joseph in Joseph Rodman Drake, think Joseph in Joseph and his friend, You could use Joseph in The Amazing uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat, but I think Joseph and his friend is even better. Because you see, Bayard Taylor wrote Joseph and his friend largely about the relationship between Joseph Drake and Fitzgreen. So, Joseph in Joseph and his friend is Joseph Rodman Drake. In the book, Joseph Rodman Drake is the younger and innocent one. In real life... The younger and more innocent partner is also called Joseph. By the way, his middle name is Rodman, like the basketball player Dennis Rodman, not Hillary Rodham Clinton. In the book, the older and more experienced partner is Philip. Philip was modeled after Fitz Green Halleck, who was also the older and more experienced partner. You know, I think sometimes the hardest part of history is just getting the names right. Joseph Rodman Drake was born in New York City in 1795 and orphaned at a young age. Interestingly enough, it was said that he was descended from Sir Francis Drake. Now, Sir Francis Drake was considered a hero by England because of his naval exploits. Sir Francis Drake was the first man to circle the globe, and Spain considered him a dangerous pirate and offered six million pounds for his capture or death. That would uh, be around 8 million pounds in today's money. Anyway, Sir Francis Drake and the policies of Elizabeth I made England a global power during their lifetimes. Well, boys and girls, it's time for your daily Sir Francis Drake joke. Actually, this is the only Sir Francis Drake joke that I know of, but I had it in the back of my head and wanted to get it into a podcast somehow. When I read that Joseph Rodman Drake was a descendant of Sir Francis Drake, I realized that this was the right time for my Sir Francis Drake-based story, a story that indirectly involves a group of kids as well as marriage equality. Now, a little bit of background. I have a wonderful cousin who is a retired college professor. Her first name is Sarah, and middle name is Francis. So, you have Sarah Francis. Francis. But for some reason, uh, some members of my family would always run the two names together in conversation. So instead of Sarah Francis, I grew up thinking it was Sir Francis. And uh, I, well, so far it's just one kid's misconception, Sir Francis. Oh, and uh, when I was a kid, I was called G.G. two capital G's, for George Glenn to distinguish me, me from my father, George Sr., It somehow seemed reasonable at the time, uh, but uh, when I later realized that the only Gigi's I knew were Leslie Caron or French Poodles, I started calling myself George. Now, stay with me on this one. When I was in elementary school, we had a, a unit on discoverers, including Columbus, Magellan, John Cabot, and Sir Francis Drake. Now, and some of you might know, based on comments that I've made in earlier episodes, I was an extremely shy kid in school, never raised my hand, always afraid of calling attention to myself. My teacher, who could be very stern, started talking about various explorers and pointed out that if we had any questions or comments, to just raise our hands. She continued talking, and after a few minutes, I'll I'll never forget it, I slowly raised my hand, and like it was happening in slow motion, she looked at me and beamed, probably thinking, why, why does little Gigi have something to say? What, what, what explorer would you like to discuss? Uh, by now, my face was beet red, but I made what I thought was a perfectly logical statement that I somehow thought the class would find Fascinating. And the teacher seemed especially encouraged that little Gigi was finally going to speak aloud in class and join in a discussion. I spoke confidently to the teacher. I have a cousin named Sir Francis. The rest all ha- seemed to happen in slow motion. The teacher momentarily looked at me as though she didn't know how to respond. But going under the assumption that I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck or tell a joke, I mean, I wouldn't have known how to tell a joke. She replied as though I had said something totally rational. "Uh, Oh, uh, is, is your cousin from England? I instantly replied, oh, no, 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 Sir Francis is from Virginia. And my parents took me to Sir Francis's wedding last summer. Sir Francis married a wonderful man. Now, marriage equality was not legal in the United States until 2013, and this would have been during the late 1950s in the South. So the class hooted and hollered, and a voice came from the back of the room. Sir Francis married a man, Sir Francis married a man, she's cousin married a man. Then the class took up the chant, and I slid down in my seat in hopes that the floor would swallow me up. To her credit, the teacher uh, respected my fragile ego by not becoming angry at me. She reprimanded the class and then looked at me and said, "Uh, that was a, a funny story, Mr. Bartley. A strange, but slightly funny. Now, I don't need to remind you, but marriage is just between a man and a woman and always will be. Looking back, I guess she felt she needed to make the uh, school-slash-county-slash-state policy clear. Still, I later saw the fact that the teacher did not tell my parents or the principal that I know of about Sir Francis was a tolerant sign. Last week, I talked by phone with my cousin Sarah Francis, not Sir Francis, but Sarah Francis, and told her that story. She howled and howled and howled with laughter and said, imagine, I definitely broke two barriers, maybe three barriers. I was the first woman to be knighted and the first American to be knighted. And depending on your perspective, I was the first American knight to have a same-sex marriage. So that's my Sir Francis story. I'm, uh, I'm going to hazard a guess and assume that you have not heard a joke about Sir Francis Drake all week, maybe even all month. Well, we really got off the, the track, that, that, the rails that time. Anyway, getting back to Halleck and Drake, sounds like a, a rock band, like Hall and Oates, Halleck and Drake. Uh, Halleck and Drake continued to work together, and in 1819 they wrote and published the Croker Papers. Very trendy papers at the time, which were satires of New York society. Halleck soon wrote what was to become his most popular poem, Fanny, a satire of the literature, politics, and fashions of the time. It was modeled on some of Lord Byron's works. Fanny was first sold for 50 cents, but later editions routinely fetched up to $10. That's like a 1999 book today, routinely selling for $400. Halleck wrote an additional 50 stanzas, and Fanny continued to be a big bestseller for more than two years. By the way, I just found out that Fanny was based on Halleck's feelings for Drake. Now, I'm not going to subject you to all of Fanny, just one minute in total. I'm sure that it would have passed the censors easily, even when it was written. But uh, notice a certain... Note of dejection at the end as though Fanny was rejecting a guy who seriously wanted something or someone, anyone to love him. And, and what does the author, the male author mean by the lines, heaven forbid that I should get myself in trouble by revealing a secret of this sort? Check out the first four stanzas. Fanny was younger than she is now and prettier, of course. I do not mean to say that there are wrinkles on her brow, yet to be candid, she is past eighteen, perhaps past twenty. But the girl is shy about her age, and heaven forbid that I should get, that I should get myself in trouble by revealing a secret of this sort. I have too long loved pretty women with a poet's feeling, and when a boy in daydream and in song have knelt me down and worshipped them, alas... They never thanked me for it, but let that pass. I've felt full many a heartache in my day at the mere rustling of a muslin gown and caught some dreadful coals. I blush to say, while shivering in the shade of beauty's frown. They say her smiles are sunbeams. It may be, but never a sunbeam would she throw on me. Remember that Halleck, still sounds like a rock group, or Halleck and Drake, were associated with the New York Society writers of the time. By far the most influential group of reporters was known as the Knickerbocker Group, and this doesn't have anything to do with the Knicks or basketball, but is very, very New York. Drake had the idea of convincing his by now close friend Halleck to work towards becoming a nationally known poet. Uh, Eventually, both Halleck and Drake did become members of the uh, New York Ugly Club, a very exclusive club specifically for handsome young men. Uh, While Halleck was older in comparison to Drake, Drake was praised for inheriting his father's good looks, trim physique, height over six feet two, and breathtaking appearance. Drake was also an accomplished flautist. does a, a flautist play the flout, and a Shakespearean orator. For the first time in his life, Fitzgreen had met someone, his equal, who seemed to feel the same way. Previously, Halleck had written to a friend, I abhor the sound of a flute and ever shall. But those feelings changed completely when he heard the handsome medical student play the instrument. Drake was said to be the most eligible bachelor in New York. But Drake came to the conclusion that he was never going to become wealthy writing and married Sarah Elkford Drake, an extremely rich heiress. Harris, Harris. I like to compare Drake's situation to that of an Anderson Cooper today. Uh, while there is quite a difference in age, Drake was in his 20s, both men uh, would uh, check the attractiveness and intelligence boxes. The situations are not exactly the same, but I think Anderson Cooper is a figure that most listeners know about, so you know where I'm coming from. The differences are that uh, an Anderson Cooper of today would have more choices, a freedom to marry whomever he chooses, and acceptance by most of the United States, well, except for some areas of the South. Uh, Drake had no choice but to marry, even if he was ruining a young lady's life. On the other hand, Halleck never married. His biographer Halleck, remember this is Halleck, learned that Halleck had fallen for a young Cuban named Carlos Menye when the writer was 19. He even dedicated a few of his early poems to Carlos. And most scholars believe that Halleck was deeply in love, or as much as he could be, with his friend Joseph Rodman Drake. Now, I remarked earlier how The Life and Letters of Fitzgreen Green Halleck by James Grant Wilson and published in 1869 was a comparatively uncontroversial account of Halleck's life. But note how Fitzgreen described serving as best man at Drake's wedding in the book. Quote, Drake has married, and as his father, wife's father is rich, I imagine he will write no more. He was poor, as poets, oh, well, of course, always are, and offered himself a sacrifice at the Shrine of Hymen to shun the pains and penalties of poverty. I officiated as groomsman, though much against my will. His wife was good-natured and loves him to distraction. He is perhaps the handsomest man in New York." A face like an angel, a form like an Apollo, and as I well knew that his person was the true index of his mind, I felt myself during the ceremony as committing a crime in aiding and assisting such a sacrifice. Not exactly subtle about his feelings. Unfortunately, Joseph Rodman Drake died the next year at age 25 from tuberculosis, or consumption. This left Drake's widow with a young daughter. The widow uh, did show interest in having Halleck as a second husband, but Halleck was aghast at the idea of having her as a romantic partner. He wrote satires regarding her, and in one, even referred to her as a witch. She died young in 1828, so Halleck never got over it, and I wouldn't say that he handled it very well. By 1830, Halleck had become a kind of celebrity for his poetry, and in 1832, Halleck was hired as the private secretary to John Jacob Astor. Now, the fabulously wealthy John Jacob Astor later chose Halleck as one of the original trustees of the Astor Library, which is the basis of the New York Public Library. Halleck became even more well-known in New York as an important part of literary society. His fame just kept increasing. His association with the Knickerbocker Group allowed him to meet writers from all over the world, such as Charles Dickens. Now, when Astor died, you might expect that he would leave someone like Halleck an incredible amount of money. But Halleck was left an annuity of only $200. Uh, His son, William, fortunately, increased the amount to $1,500. In 1849, Halleck retired to his hometown of Guilford and lived there with his unmarried sister, Marie Halleck, for the remainder of his life. On November the 19th, 1867, around 11 o'clock at night, he called out to his sister, Marie, hand me my pantaloons if you please. He, He died without making another sound before she could turn around. In 1869, a granite, monument was erected to Halleck in Guilford. This was the first monument ever to memorialize an American poet. The speaker chosen was Bayard Taylor, and uh, he said that in establishing this monument to an American poet, we symbolize the intellectual growth of the American people. The life of the poet who sleeps here represents the long period of transition between the appearance of American poets poetry and the creation of an appreciative and sympathetic audience for it. I wonder if many of the citizens of that small town could have imagined that with both Joseph Drake and Fitz Green Halleck dead, Bayard Taylor would go on to write the first gay novel by an American, Joseph and his friend, and the novel would be largely based on the relationship between the two men. In 1877, a memorial statue of Fitzgreen Halleck was erected in New York City's Central Park. The odd thing is that Halleck is the only American writer on the literary walk. The statue was dedicated by then-President Rutherford B. Hayes, with 10,000 people attending. Uh, They have a statue of Robert Burns and, naturally, Shakespeare, but no Whitman or even Poe, just Fitzgreen Halleck to represent the United States.
1: Well, hello, Mr. Poe. So glad you're here. It is most agreeable to see you too, Mr. Bartlett.
0: Mr. Poe, would you like to read aloud these six short verses from a piece you wrote about Joseph Rodman Drake in September 1843 for Graham's magazine? I think it would be a fitting way to conclude this look at Fitz Green Halleck. This is from your very positive review of "Lines on the Death of Joseph Rodman Drake," a poem that contains the lines, "And I who woke each morrow to clasp thy hand in
1: mine." Why, certainly, I thought you would never ask. Now, the lines on the death of Joseph Rodman Drake are deservedly popular. We quote them in full. Green be the turf above thee, friend of my better days. None knew thee but to love thee, nor named thee but to praise. Tears fell when thou wert dying, from eyes unused to weep, and long where thou art lying, will tears the cold turf steep. When hearts whose truth was proven like thine are laid in earth, there should be a wreath be woven to tell the world of their worth. And I who woke each morrow to clasp thy hand in mine, who shared thy joy and sorrow, whose weal and woe were thine. It, it should be mine to braid it, Around thy faded brow But I've in vain assated And I feel I cannot now While memory bids me weep thee Nor thoughts nor words are free The grief is fixed too deeply That mourns a man like thee Yes, no name in the poetical world Is more firmly established Than that of Fitz. Green Halleck.
0: Sources include The Life and Letters of Fitz Green Halleck by James Grant Wilson, The American Byron, Homosexuality in the Fall of Fitz Green Halleck by John W. M. Halleck, Edgar Allan Poe, a critical biography by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, a documentary life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man, by Mary E. Phillips, and The Home Life of Edgar Allan Poe, by Susan Archer Tally Weiss. Why not visit my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. Now, after the special episodes for Pride Month this June, Celebrate Poe is going to take a, a deep dive back into the life and writings of Poe. There are so many subjects involved in trying to understand Edgar Allan Poe and his complex works, but I feel that a solid understanding of his greatness rests on mainly two aspects. First, his creativity, and by by creativity, I'm including his inspirations and imagination. And I believe the second main reason for his greatness is his use of language, his understanding of words and how to use them especially in producing an effect. Beginning in July, Celebrate Poe will get back to two other imaginative genres, largely from Europe, that influenced Poe. Starting with the vampire-slash-undead genre from the Villa Diodati, and then covering the fascinating story of the black vampire, as well as later vampire stories and even movies. It is also felt that the werewolf genre of stories influenced Poe, especially in his use of the doppelganger theme. Then Celebrate Poe will specifically cover Poe's years as a child in England. And this is really important when it concentrates on his education. I'm finding some exciting stuff regarding the information that he learned, especially classical rhetoric, to become one of America's greatest writers. During uh, discussing classical rhetoric might seem a bit dry when you first look at it, but uh, I have a feeling that you'll find it fascinating and understand Edgar Poe in an exciting new way. Now getting back to the two remaining episodes for Pride Month. This episode leads right to into the next episode on Walt Whitman. An episode on the homoerotic works of Walt Whitman will drop at midnight on Monday, June the 21st. Walt Whitman was one of America's greatest poets, and a man Poe actually met and regarded highly. And some might say that he was America's greatest poet. Finally, on June the 28th, this podcast will have an episode on an individual who was greatly influenced by Poe, Oscar Wilde. This episode will deal with the friendship of Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman, the years Wilde spent in prison, and a comparison of Poe's story The Oval Portrait with the annotated, uncensored, original version of Wilde's The Portrait of Dorian Gray, with the objectionable and indecent parts uncut. Well, thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.